In James chapter 2, verses 19, the Bible says, You believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. In Romans chapter 1, verse 21, Paul wrote to the church at Rome, and he said, Although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. We're going to talk about the inspiration of the Bible. Tonight, if uh, you were unable last Sunday evening to get the copy of the, the three booklets, uh, we have some men in the back. If you were not able to get that last Sunday, we have just a few copies. If you'll raise your hand or let the men in the back know. In this series, we are looking at uh, a set of booklets, very similar to the uh, Back to the Bible booklets, which we had gone through as a congregation. But this particular set, as Cody introduced last Sunday night, is a set intended for those to bring them to a point where opening up the scriptures, opening up the Bible, is meaningful to them. And that's not going to be the case unless they believe that there is a God. Last Sunday evening, Cody introduced the first booklet in this Believe the Bible series, which focused on understanding that God does exist, looking at some arguments of the cosmos, of the design, of the morality that we find in humanity that show and prove God's existence. But just as James wrote in James chapter 2 and Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1, believing in God is it's good, but it doesn't take you all the way. You see, in John chapter 12, John wrote, uh, Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. A few verses later, in John chapter 12, verse 48, we see that Jesus, he said, He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. You see, belief in God is good. It's the starting point. But then looking at the words, looking at the word that Jesus brought, looking at the gospel, looking at God's word that the apostles spread to all the world is of paramount importance. We're going to uh, work our way through this book. Not every single question, not every single verse, not every single topic maybe, but uh, hitting some of the highlights, hitting some of the, the, the main flavors so that we can uh, have this in our mind, have this in our repertoire uh, when we come across people who have that belief in God but aren't quite sure about God's word, the Bible. There are many tools that do this. Uh, this is one of them. Uh, looking at uh, tools from Apologetics Press, from World Video Bible School, from the Gospel Broadcasting Network, from House to House, Christian Courier, there's numerous within our brotherhood that have different tools. And what I will maybe preface as we begin is that depending on who you're talking to, will help to choose and identify what kind of tool you want to use in approaching them. It may not be this one, but this one is a, a good one to sit across the table and discuss God's word. So as we think about the inspiration of the Bible in particular tonight, 
There's an, in the introduction to the, to the book, there is a statement talks about when one accepts the reasonable possibility of a divine being. It seems logical that such a being would seek to communicate with his creation. All right, well, that's the, that's the context, that's the preface to beginning. If someone is believing in God, if they are ready to think about how did that divine being, how could they communicate to their creation what they wanted, wanted them to know, wanted them to do in making choices? Well, the question in the booklet simply says, are you willing to consider the possibility that such a divine being communicated to us through the Bible? That's a pretty good starting question because if the answer from the person you're speaking with across the table, if their answer is no, well then backing up, all right, looking at some questions or some ideas about, well, what is the God that they really think exists? Because the God that does exist, the God of the Bible, is a personal God, a God of characteristics, a God of personality, a God of love and care and concern, compassion, mercy, grace, extended to humanity. If they want to know about that God, well then, here we can talk about the reasonableness of that God being the God of the Bible. So first off, in this book, as we look at the, this particular booklet and or any, any approach, uh, here are the main areas that this book covers. First off, it covers the claim, the Bible's claim. Then it talks about characteristics within the Bible, all right? scientific and medical, uh, foreknowledge, things that man on our, on our own would not know. Man at that time in history when they were writing would not have known without divine guidance. We then talk about prophecy and we'll talk about uh, historical verification. The Bible's divine claim. First, it's, it's good to, to think about the fact that in our world there are tons of books books on every subject, books written by many authors, one author, single author, two authors. If you've ever been into a large library, say like the Library of Congress in D.C., or maybe you've been in the University of Texas library right here close, or a university library wherever you grew up, and you walk in, you will see aisles and aisles of books stacked from the floor to the ceiling, curving around bins and in different wings and in different sections, Right? How many of those books actually claim to be from God? They would fit on one little end table in one little corner of one part of that library. You see, there's only a few books that take the enormous, uh, the, the coming from God. What a huge claim to make. And so most humans won't do that. And that's that's good. That's what we see. But of the few books that do, the Bible absolutely does. In 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, we find all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. All right. In the booklet, the question looks at this verse, 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, and says, uh, ask the question, all Scripture is given by, well, the verse tells us, by inspiration of God. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, it tells us that knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. 
What does that verse tell us? It says that it did not come by the will of man, but from the Holy Spirit, okay? A very direct claim that the Bible makes. Uh, And there are a couple other verses used in the booklet, Nehemiah chapter 9, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. But one of the major arguments, or, or one of the clearest that I can think about, is the fact that throughout Scripture beginning in Genesis chapter 1 all the way to the ending of Revelation, we see this phrase, thus saith the Lord. God said, God spoke. This is what God said to his people, brought to his people. Over 2,700 times, the Bible uses these words that, that what was being conveyed was coming directly from God himself, a divine being. 27 hundred times. Well, that's, that's a very significant claim, something that must be taken. You know, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, it tells us that God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, all right? What did God do? Well, God spoke, God conveyed, and he did it in various ways and in various mechanisms at times, using people to convey his message. So there is one concluding statement found on on page three of the booklet for this section, all right? And and these booklets are laid out very simply, right, where you look at a verse, you look at a thought, and then there's a simple question. And the question states, is it your understanding that the Bible claims to have a divine origin? All right, yes. The answer should be yes, uh, as it is clearly stated in the verses themselves and by what the Bible has to say. But there's a big difference uh, as we think about uh, possible origins for the Bible itself. It claims to be from God. Here we have a book filled with, with text, filled with words. How did we get this book? Okay, there's only a few possibilities. At the back of the booklet on page 22, there's this, this nice kind of summarizing statement. And it says that good men would not have written the Bible. That's kind of a strange, uh, a strange starting, right? Good men would not have written the Bible. Well, because the Bible claims to be from God, and, and good men, they don't lie. It's not their purpose. They're not trying, right? Okay, so, so good men did not write the Bible, even though we find great statements, great principles for life. The second option is that evil men wrote the Bible, but, but the Bible is very, very specific, very harsh against evil, against lying, against taking and deceiving someone. And, and, and here we have a, a book that would condemn their own lies. And then, of course, we have the option of Satan. Well, Satan would not have written the Bible as it opposes everything that he uh, stands for, evil. So, if we think about just those options, men or something beyond men, well, you have good, not good men, because they would be lying, not evil men, because they would be condemning themselves, not Satan, because it's against his nature, and so you are left with God. But this is just the claim of the Bible, right? This is just the claim. And, and many times, books will make a claim, and that claim may not be true. So now we get to evaluate the, the content, all right? We have the claim. And the claim is important because otherwise we wouldn't stop and consider this book. You know, there's a lot of books in libraries, as we discussed, and and we don't stop and read every single one. We don't take them into our life and try to live our lives by them. 
partly because they don't, they don't make a large claim of importance in our life. The Bible does. But what about the contents of the Bible? Well, the contents of the Bible. The Bible speaks in lots of different areas, uh, lots of different topics and subjects and venues and purposes. Uh, and on every subject, every account, every statement is true, is valid, holds up under scrutiny. No matter what region of life it addresses. And so we'll start first with the idea that in the Bible, when it makes a claim or a statement about, that has some sort of scientific relevance, in general, every single time it holds true. You see, the Bible's general scientific foreknowledge can be seen in several areas. And in the book that discusses just a few of these, and there are dozens others, but just a few. First off, in the very first book of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 6, we read of an incredible account, but one that has been shown to be true and valid in lots of other areas, and we find this story about Noah's Ark in Genesis chapter 6. We find that there was a, a, a ship built for the saving of mankind, and that uh, this ship carried with it uh, precious cargo of the animal life that that had the breath of life in its nostrils, and then eight souls. What we find, though, is that there are very specific instructions given in Genesis chapter 6. If you'll think back in your mind, uh, there were specific uh, uh, dimensions, 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, 30 cubits tall, right? very specific dimensions. And what we have found through history, okay, through our own human analysis, is that the dimensions of the ark have a very uh, important aspect to them and that they are stable. It is a stable shipbuilding ratio, one that has been used in, in modern times for uh, passenger ships like the SS Great Britain, in wartime cargo ships like the Liberty ships of World War II, and even in modern-day ships that carry livestock all over the oceans from one continent to another, follow very similar relationships. Something to mention about the book as you go through some of these ideas, there are very brief, very concise statements below the questions and verses as you study with someone using this method. Here in Genesis chapter 6 verse 15, there is a, a note that gives you sort of the context for the ark and it says the ratio that Noah used to build the ark is 30 to 5 to 3, a perfect ratio for building a large vessel of seaworthiness, not for speed, it actually says the U.S. Navy used this ratio of World War II for its ship, SS Jeremiah, which was one of the, the Liberty ships that I mentioned. So here we have a, a, a person who uh, lived 2,500 years ago, and his story was recorded over, well, 2,500 B.C., I apologize, 2,500 B.C., 4,500 years ago. And what he did, what he laid out, we are still using in the 21st century as a good ratio mechanism for building ships. If we think about uh, the next item on our list there, oceanography. In Psalm chapter 8, and if you have your Bibles and would like to turn over to Psalm chapter 8, a beautiful uh, psalm that speaks of the glory of God through creation. Psalm chapter 8. The psalm starts out in verse 1, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Who have set your glory above the heavens. 
In verse 3 it says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him? Now look down at verse 8. In speaking about all the works in verses 6 and 7 that we see around us, the the world that God put under the dominion of man, it then says in verse 8, speaking of the birds of the air and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the sea. All right, In in this section we have nature, various aspects of nature being brought out, talking about the glory of God. And here we have a reference to the paths of the sea. Well, we understand in, uh, if you lived next to any sort of body of water, next to a river, the river is flowing. Next to uh, a, a lake, you have currents from a river coming in and, and water going out somewhere. Uh, in small bays or, or gulfs like the Gulf of Mexico, there are, there are, are movements of water. But, but this is talking about uh, paths of the seas. It's talking about places that the animals traverse that the water is, is flowing, okay, paths of the seas, not just one place, but many places. In uh, the 1800s, there was a man by the name of uh, Matthew Fontaine Murray, or Maury, and you will find a, a, a description in the book on, on page 6 that goes into a, a little bit of a longer detail for this booklet, uh, and it talks about that this gentleman, uh, Matthew Maury, that he is considered and known as the father of oceanography. He wrote the first textbook called The Physical Geography of the Sea and Its Meteorology. He began studying the seas, looking at the currents and the paths, and some of these had been known, right? Some of these had been used in, in, in passageways and traveling the seas, but he began to chart it to depths that had not been seen, and what he found driven much by his love of Scripture. He found and he charted some of the underwater passageways and trenches and ocean currents that are are, are still known and used today. Uh, There's actually an an epitaph. I was was reading uh, uh, online uh, in the state of Virginia in 1926 uh, at his passing. uh, They placed a a plaque on a a pass uh, through sort of the mountains near a headwater of of one of the rivers. Uh, And this plaque, interestingly, ironically, it was passed on the Goshen, the Goshen Pass, here is this plaque for this, this gentleman, and in the plaque it talked about that his inspiration for being called the father of oceanography, his inspiration was the Holy Writ. It even lists Psalm chapter 8, Psalm chapter 107, Ecclesiastes chapter 1 as being specific passages that he loved and that gave him inspiration. Did he discover all, this, all the paths of the seas or, or, or uncover them all or... No, but his love for scripture, his understanding of this verse and that there was more to be discovered within creation and that that discovery pointed to God. I would encourage you, uh, take this booklet and read this little quote. There is a quote specifically from uh, Mr. Maury. Very interesting how he talks about how those around him uh, didn't necessarily appreciate that he used the Bible and loved the Bible and everything that he did. But he didn't see any problem with merging science with scripture. One more uh, idea, general scientific foreknowledge that we see discussed in the Bible well in advance of when we and what we know today is talking about the water cycles. All right, water cycle. It seems uh, 
pretty obvious, pretty simple that uh, we teach it to our, our grade school kids that, that there is precipitation, there is condensation, there is evaporation, and these three form a cycle for where the water goes. Well, in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, Solomon writing this book, he talks about that the rivers run to the seas, but the seas are not full. They do not overflow. They are not filled. And then in chapter 11, verse 3, and also in Amos chapter 9, verse 6, we find references to the clouds being full of rain and emptying themselves upon the earth. Or as Amos chapter 9, verse 6 talks about the waters of the sea being poured out on the face of the earth. Very simple statements, but but made at a time where they had not traveled the entire world. They had, did not have the scientific knowledge that we have today. They spoke of the flow of water, the flow of water through the rivers into the seas, that the water from the seas went back to the clouds and then emptied themselves when they were full onto the face of the earth. When you get to the book, the booklet into page 7, you'll find some summary questions for this statement. And one of these, a couple of these statements, they say, was the Bible lucky or did it display divine knowledge when it described or recorded the perfect ratio used for the ark or the water cycle or oceanography and paths of the seas? All right, well, it uses this phrase, was the Bible lucky or did it display divine knowledge? And the question is, is meant to be put in front of our prospects, someone we're studying with. And so at this point, they could look at and they could answer Did they think it lucky or or, or was it from God? At this point, it's still pretty early, okay? And so I would say in studying, if they they hesitate, uh, hesitate to say, well, well, yes, it was God, that's okay, all right? Take their answer. Take their insight. Maybe point them back and talk about how uh, Genesis, written in 2500, or written in 1500 B.C., about a man in 2500 B.C., or, or the book of Psalms, written in 1000 B.C., or Ecclesiastes, written in the mid-900s B.C. You can point them back to the ancientness of this text, but yet the simple, the simplicity of what it says being true today. But let's build upon that, because the next section of the book talks about very specific scientific foreknowledge that goes to uh, medicine, uh, into the medical field. Uh, The Old Testament books of law, specifically Exodus and Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy, uh, speak about laws and guidelines that were given to the Israelites as the Israelites were moving uh, out of captivity uh, and onto their own, all right? So you have laws and guidelines being given at the starting of a nation, the starting of a people. And in those laws, we we find some very specific things, things that relate to health and sanitation and, and, and what to eat and not to eat. And what we find in Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, uh, a simple phrase in speaking about, uh, about health, okay, the, the, the health of animal life, the health of, of humanity, that the life of the flesh is in the blood, all right? A very, a very short, simple statement, the life of the flesh is in the blood. The life of animals is in their blood. The life of humans is in their blood. And, and uh, you know, it's an interesting, just a, a small passing uh, phrase found in this section talking about health in chapter 17, but one that was forgotten uh, through the centuries. Bloodletting was a, was a very common practice through uh, sort of the, the, the dark ages, through the, the medieval times, even up into uh, the starting of our own country, all right? Uh, George Washington, it was, it was said, uh, 
when he was, uh, he was sick in the last few days of his life that they came in, and within a 16-hour period, they drained five to seven pints of blood from George Washington. All right, well, today we go and, and, and donate blood. Usually that's one pint, all right, one pint, and then you're supposed to go and, and take a little bit of time of rest. You're supposed to, to drink a lot of fluids and, and eat food and, okay, regain your strength. But at this time, in a 16-hour period, they, they drained five to seven pints of blood, and historians believe that this was a major contributing factor to, to him losing his life. Well, Leviticus chapter 17 pretty early on stated that, that blood was a very important aspect to all of life. The next idea is found in Deuteronomy chapter 23 and also Numbers chapter 19 when it speaks about uh, just some simple sanitation practices. Uh, in these passages, it, it, it's nothing, it's nothing just, just grand. It's talking about uh, the disposal of, of waste, human waste. Specifically in Deuteronomy chapter 23, it talks about uh, uh, the fact that you are to go outside the camp. When the, when, the, when the army is out and they are encamped and they are together, they are to go outside the camp to bury their, their human waste. We know today that that is very important for, for hygiene, okay, for sanitation, for keeping things uh, clean and sanitary. Uh, but uh, when we look back in history, we see that, that this was not always followed and that very, very poor sanitation has led to numerous pandemics. Uh, of course, one of the, the largest in history that we could think of would be the, the Black Death in the 1300s that swept across Europe and Asia. Uh, in the booklet, it, it very conservatively mentions that uh, the Black Death uh, killed 13 million people. If you look at uh, various... Uh, History references, it, it goes anywhere from 13 to 20 just in Europe. Uh, if you think about the fact that it actually started in Asia and made its way through ships and through their, their cargo and through people traveling on ships, it traveled from Asia, the, the numbers are upward 75 to 200 million people who died. Now, this particular disease uh, carried along, they believe, uh, it's, a, it's a bacterial disease carried along by, by fleas, maybe on rats, and then once it starts to begin past, poor sanitation uh, carried that plague uh, in, in spreading. Very interesting, in Numbers chapter 19, sort of a complementary passage to this, uh, we find a, a section that talks about purification. And it has reference some to the purification uh, as, we, as, as the Israelites were to, to worship, okay, coming in and out of times of worship, but it also talked about just in general. In Numbers chapter 19, verse 9, it says, A man who is clean shall gather up ashes of a heifer and store them outside the camp in a clean place, and they shall be kept for the congregation of the children of Israel for the water of purification. Well, you might think, what, what do ashes, ashes of a heifer, have to do with, with purification? Uh, in this particular passage in Numbers chapter 19, there is a, a, a very short prescription uh, for taking uh, wool, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and ashes, and burning those in making a, a sort of a solution or, or, or a mixture, and that mixture was then going to be uh, compiled with water. And it, it's actually some of the fundamental ingredients that lye soap would be made out of. And so they have this, this solution, okay, or this, this mixture that would be outside the camp, which they would then go and if they had encountered a dead body, if they had helped someone who had ultimately died, uh, if they had come across a carcass 
uh, in the camp or outside of the camp, and they had touched it, touching something dead. They were to go, and they were to go through this water of purification. Actually, in Numbers chapter 19, verse 11, it talks about touching of a dead human and how if you touched someone who had died, that you had a seven-day period of quarantine. On the third day, you were to go and use the waters of purification with this solution. You were then to wait four more days on the seventh day and go wash again. And only at that point would you then be clean. And and all of that's under the context that you had not gotten some sort of disease, developed some sort of sores or or boils, right? Because there's a whole other prescription for that where they would show up and be analyzed and looked at by the priest whether they could come in or not. Actually, in Numbers 19, it goes on to talk about that uh, uh, where a person had died, if they had died in their tent, that their whole tent was to be washed and purified. If something dead encountered a pot, uh, that pot was to be broken. So we see some very simple descriptions, all right, given to a people who was traveling in the wilderness uh, in a in a mobile type environment, setting up their nation, going to different places, how could they help themselves keep good sanitation? Well, the Bible lines some things out. And if you think about their history, something that that goes on uh, beyond uh, just thinking about good practices, what we find is that these, the the law given to to the Israelites, that it was given at at a time, right? Moses writing about 1500 B.C., and it was given despite what surrounded them, all right? We think about the Egyptians, and the Egyptians were very advanced in science and, and mathematics. In terms of medicine, they knew how to embalm somebody, right, somebody who was dead. They didn't necessarily know how to keep them alive very well. Uh, there are some texts that talk about some of the medicine practices, about rubbing dung onto open wounds to make them better. Okay? The writing that we find in the Old Testament, in the law, was a, a stark contrast to the scientific knowledge known at the time, even in uh, the nation of Egypt. So there are some summarizing questions, again, for this section in the book, uh, where it, it talks and it asks uh, regarding what does the Bible say? Uh, was the Bible lucky, or did it display divine knowledge when it talked about forbidding certain animals Uh, to be eaten, whether they had died or not, Uh, the disposal of human waste or the fact that the life of the flesh is in the blood. Uh, All right, so at this point, we are building our case. As we study with somebody, does the Bible claim to be from God? Yes. Does the Bible give good general knowledge that was not known at that time, but that was carried out? Yes. Does it give good sanitation and medical practices for a nomadic people? to put into place immediately, easily. Yes, it does. We then turn and we think about prophecy. Starting on, verse, or starting on page 13 in the booklets, uh, it talks about uh, and lists some prophetic evidence. And it talks about the very first verse in Jeremiah 28, verse 9. If you want to make a quick correction there in your booklet, Jeremiah 28, verse 9 It speaks that as for the prophet who prophesies of peace, when the word of the prophet comes to pass, the prophet will be known as one whom the Lord has truly sent. All right? The Bible lays it out in a very fair, balanced statement. If the prophet or the prophecy, which is put out there, given, if it comes to pass, then the prophet was true, right? 
when we turn and look at Scripture, we need to evaluate. Does the, the Scripture make prophecies? Does it speak about things in a forward-looking time, giving specifics? And then do they come to pass? There were two specifics that I wanted to mention that uh, are not particularly in, not in the booklet. Uh, one of those is found in 1 Kings chapter 13, verse 2. In this passage in 1 Kings, it talks about a future king. And it gives his name, King Josiah. That he would be a future king and that he would be a king of Judah and that his lineage would be from David. That prophecy in 1 Kings chapter 13 occurs 300 years before Josiah's birth. In a similar fashion, in Isaiah chapter 44 verse 28 and Isaiah 45 verse 1, there is a prophecy spoken about a ruler who would come. A ruler who would conquer and, and, and would rule and uh, gives his name specifically as Cyrus. It talked about some of the things and events and actions that Cyrus would take. That prophecy in Isaiah was 150 years before those events spoken of and Cyrus. The Bible has many prophecies. Those are a couple, and, but specifically many of the prophecies revolve around the Messiah who was to come. And these, of course, are very, very important, and they will also help the person you're studying with as they go to look at the third booklet in your study that talks about Jesus. Here we find in Scripture prophecies about the lineage of, of the Messiah. In Micah chapter 5, verse 2, Micah says, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me, the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. When we turn to the New Testament, what do we find? Uh, we find Jesus. And where is Jesus born? He's born in a little town, Bethlehem. There in Micah, it talks about this, uh, this ruler who would come out of the thousands of Judah, but yet he would be of old and his, he would be from everlasting, speaking about the Messiah. We also have very specific... Uh, prophecies about uh, the Messiah's lineage, that he would come from the seed of Abraham, as spoken in Genesis chapter 12, that he would be from the seed of Isaac, Genesis chapter 17, that he'd be from the tribe of Judah, Genesis chapter 49, and that he would be from the royal lineage of David, 2 Samuel chapter 7. All of those can be verified in the genealogies, right, those long lists of of random or or hard-to-say names in Matthew chapter 1, Luke chapter 3, but we can see all of those pieces. And, and what's interesting to think about is that uh, Abraham, uh, he had uh, many sons, not just Isaac and Ishmael, but he ended up having many sons. Isaac had two sons. Uh, Jacob had 12 sons. And so when we think about just the uh, sort of the statistics or the probability that somebody would come through this entire lineage and qualify as the Messiah, it It was a very precise prophecy. But we also have prophecy about death, all right? And and prophecy about death would be very hard for one person to make come true in and of themselves on their own. And in Psalm chapter 22, we have a couple of specific prophecies speaking of the piercing of hands and feet, the casting of lots for his garments. We see both of those fulfilled in the New Testament John chapter 20 and Matthew chapter 27. 
So when you get to the summary uh, page in the booklet, page 16, and it talks about was the Bible just lucky? All right, hopefully by this time in the study, that, that word lucky, lucky is, is not, uh, uh, not light for them. All right. At the beginning, it might have been, well, okay, maybe, maybe there was some good luck, right? Uh, sometimes the statement is, is said, every squirrel finds an acorn sometime, right? Well, no, because by the time we have gotten to this point, we have talked about all that the Bible claims, all that the Bible says, all that the Bible has said in prophetic nature, given hundreds of years, thousands of years before the time that it would come to pass. For time's sake, I'm going to, uh, to skip the next section, which talks about, very quickly, it talks about uh, the historical evidence. The Bible is very specific, talking about people, talking about places, talking about events, where and when and how and what happened and how much and how long, and, and all of those are facts and figures that somebody, if they wanted to, could try to tear the Bible apart, and they have throughout history. But every one of those facts and figures has been found true. The last, one of the last statements as we uh, uh, move to the very end of the book, uh, there is a section on page uh, 20, and it talks about the ethical evidence for the Bible. Uh, one last kind of uh, argument for the Bible's inspiration comes from the fact that the Bible says things that, uh, that other ethics of the world had not said that you are to love your enemy, that you are to feed them, that you are to give them drink and water, that you are to bless those that curse you. You see, the Bible stands very differently from, from what the world says around us and how we treat each other and what is going on. And uh, it stands up in the content and in the claim. As we... Uh, wrap up if we think about one of the verses that we started off with in John chapter 12. It talked about that uh, many rulers believed in Jesus. But then it goes on to say that uh, they wouldn't confess him. They wouldn't follow him. They wouldn't do what he was asking of his disciples. And in John chapter 12 verse 48, he who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. As we think about our own lives, have we in some way rejected him? We're going to offer the invitation and we're going to stand in just a moment for the invitation song, but uh, the, the question, of course, to us as we sit on one side of the table holding this booklet is, do we believe what the Bible says? Have we put it into our lives? Do we see it as God-breathed, right? Or have we in some way rejected it? But then, of course, the question is, we're wanting to put that in front of our, our loved one, our friend, our neighbor, to tell them that this book has the words of life. And if they want to have a fulfilled life, a, a great, deep, loving life, then here is God's word. And it's very simple to become a disciple of Jesus Christ. You believe on him, but then you act on it. You change your life in repentance. You confess him as the Savior. You submit yourself in a passive acceptance. You are immersed in water to rise to walk in newness of life. That is the simplicity of the gospel. 
and then we have the opportunity to go on living it. The invitation is open to anyone who has need of prayers or of the congregation, and uh, as we stand and sing, you'll have that opportunity.